Vince and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, where we go back to the past and read some comic books from the yesteryear of publishing. You can hear us every week on the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast feed. That'll be on Sunday mornings. And eventually pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Covert Caps Communications. That's mm-hmm. a little tip-off to the book that we had. We're doing this week, requested by none other than artist V. Ken Marion, yes. uh, who works mainly for DC Comics. And, uh, you know, this, I don't know if, he, I don't think he knows this, but V. Ken Marion had a uh, part in putting Chris and I together, Chris and myself, because um, yep. he worked on, he drew the Bloodlines miniseries that was written by J.T. Krull last spring basically right started in Mm -hmm. april and uh through a longer thing where i actually petitioned to get uh chris to write an article for the weird science site and eventually uh we all got on the podcast together and talked about bloodlines number one and from there it spun out into chris and uh myself doing podcasting of our own so yes. thank you thank you to v ken marion or or you might want to say curse you v ken marion however you want to look at it but uh yeah he he played a big role so we definitely wanted to uh do his request for this week's cosmic treadmill what book is that chris that is going to be wildcats covert action teams number one uh it's uh, titled resurrection day written by brandon Choi, co-plot and pencil by jim lee inked by Scott Williams, colored by Joe Roses with uh, Digital Chameleon, lettering by Michael Heisler, edited by Ruth Grice, cover date August 1992, on sale date August 7th, 1992. Hmm. Cover price, $1.95 USD, uh, $2.35 CND. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Yes. Um, We're going to start, as we usually do, with some uh, creator bios. We're not going to start with Lee. We're going to start with Choi. That's the shorter one. (laughs) It's the far shorter one. Uh, He was born in South Korea, but raised in St. Louis, Missouri. Not a lot of info about this guy. We don't even know his birthday. We assume he was born on dry land, (laughs) but we don't know when. Uh, According to the back of the Wildcats Compendium, which is a trade collection of the first four issues, that I actually found on a rack in a 7-Eleven on Sunrise Highway. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's weird. It it was polybag with number zero. Um, (laughs) According to the back of that book, he left a career in law to write comics. Um... That's all we got. So we might have to suffice it to say that he's a childhood friend of Jim Lee's. And uh, we'll let him talk about his buddy from the opening bit of uh, Wildcats number one. Jim Lee would say, Brandon was and still remains one of my closest friends, right behind my wife, Angie. We've known each other since the fifth grade, and it's no exaggeration to anyone who knows us that we are more like brothers. Although we did not create our own golden, silver, and modern age versions of our characters like the Savage Dragons creator, Eric Lawson, we still managed to waste hours of our childhoods in our parents' kitchens cooking up our own heroes and villains. Yeah, and here's a partial bibliography. Most of these comics are from Jim Lee's Wildstorm imprint on Image Comics that we will be talking a lot more about in this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he wrote Wildcats, co-created with Jim Lee, A Darker Image, Stormwatch, Deathblow, Death Mate, more on that later. Image Zero, Wet Works, co-created Gen 13, which was a pretty big book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Kindred, and wrote Savage Dragon 13. Well, one of the Savage Dragon 13s. Huh. Uh, in February 1994, for Image Comics' Image, Image X Month, the founders all swapped books. Uh, Dragon creator Eric Larson wanted to have his own number 13, <laughs> so he'd have an uninterrupted run. Which, you know, that sounds like something that would... uh. Might be a big deal to some people. Yeah, especially uh, Eric Larson. Especially one Eric Larson. But I, I can't hold that again. No, I can't. It, it, it make, but it is such an Eric Larson thing, you know? Like, it is. I got to have an uh, uninterrupted run so that, you know, the Guinness Book of Records is correct or whatever. Yes, yeah, so he wants to He wants to get up to there to that uh, Dave Sim level. Yep. Uh, now, the Choi and Lee Savage Dragon number 13 is often referred to as 13A. Yeah, and there were some other uh, X-Month books. Uh, they were Cyberforce number 8, penciled by Todd McFarlane, Shadowhawk number 0, Words and Art by Rob Liefeld, Spawn number 23, penciled by Mark Silvestri, Wildcats, Covert Action Teams number 14, Words and Art by Eric Larson, and Youngblood number 9, Words and Art by Jim Valentino. Those are pretty interesting 
uh, items, probably take a look at, see how these other creators dealt with these properties. Uh, some more of these uh, books that Brandon Choi wrote for, Grifter She, Sigma, and then also just Grifter. Fantastic Four, the Heroes Reborn version that we're going to touch on later. Cytech, The Patriots, and Disavowed. And he created these characters all by himself. Uh, Caitlin Fairchild, Zealot, Spartan, Lord Hellspont. Some of them you'll be meeting today, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. And uh, Christine Trelane from Stormwatch. Yes. Now... Mr. Jim Lee, mm -hmm. born August 11th, 1964 in Seoul, South Korea. He grew up, hey, near St. Louis, Missouri, <laughs> in a, a typical middle-class uh, childhood. He had a typical middle-class childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, thing is, Jim didn't speak English. Uh, it caused him to feel like an outsider, and uh, like many outsiders before him, he was drawn to comic books, particularly the X-Men, who were, if anybody's read X-Men, they know they're kind of shunned by society as well. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, said that uh, Jim partially taught himself English by reading comics. He would read every single word on every single page until he understood them. And that's not just limited to the story. He also included the ads, the letters page, and even the in indicia. Yep. Uh, in Jim's high school yearbook, his classmates predicted that he would found his own comic book company. I guess uh, prescience was a uh, a, a major yeah, in his I think, high school. I think, he, I think he went to Psychics <laughs> High School in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> he did. Now, despite loving comics and uh, being considered quite talented, Jim had every intention to follow his father's footsteps into medicine, which probably made his parents happy, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, after high school, Jim attended Princeton University to study psychology. In 1986, close to graduation, he took a drawing class, and uh, that reignited his passion for comic books. Um, it also might have helped that this was right as Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen were uh, were hitting, and that's uh, that's pretty much what uh, what Jim says. Yeah. Uh, he would get himself a psychology degree, but he would postpone medical school. And he gave himself a year to break into comics. Um, he uh, made a deal with his parents where he would reapply to medical school if his comic stream did not pan out. Yeah, so but I'm, obviously this is a pretty smart cookie, as we uh, as yes, we noted he's here. A, he's, a, he's a bright individual. Going to Princeton, and he could have gone this other way, but instead he spent much of that one year drawing every day, eight plus hours a day, and found mm -hmm. that every couple of months he felt his artwork made a leap in quality. He was getting ready for prime time. Uh, when, Lee when Lee befriended St. Louis area comics artist Don Sekaris and Rick, Rick Burchett, they convinced him he should needed to show his portfolio to editors in person. So his work was initially rejected by both Marvel and DC. From Howard Mackey at Marvel, in his rejection letter, he wrote, We looked your submission over carefully, just as we said we would, and we're sorry to tell you that your work doesn't suit our particular standards. He continues, we do know that to make progress, you must work hard and be tough on yourself. Cold-blooded. Uh, yeah, and just, just to think what would happen later. Uh, mm -hmm. more, more from Mackie, he said, your sense of design and storytelling abilities are quite good. However, your figures tend to be stiff and unrealistic. This has not helped on the two pages where you have inked over your own pencils. I suggest that you draw from live models, especially for faces, hands, and perspective. Also study how cloth folds and wrinkles, how metal reflects, how leather shines, etc. And then learn to translate that into your pencils. You have a lot of work ahead of you before you are ready to pencil for a company such as Marvel. But when you see some improvement, you are welcome to resubmit. It's amazing, right? Yeah, I know. So any, any artists who feel bad about your work right now... Look at what Jim Lee got. Yeah, <laughs> let me tell you. Yeah, in this in this world, I think we both know that you know sticking with something you know is, is pays off. Pays off. Yeah, just hang in there, folks. Mm -hmm. Now, across the street at DC, uh, Dick Giordano received a uh, received a submission, and he wrote back and said, "I'm sorry to say that your submission does not meet with the current DC standards." Sorry. <laughs> also, it included a handwritten PS under the type letter that says, "Some interesting stuff. Keep at it." D. Which so is he, uh, probably the kind of comment that sent him soaring, too, you know, like, I'm sure, right? You know? <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, that, it's amazing, though, how, you know, I mean, I bet a lot of a lot of artists have could have similar stories just like this, but it's to see where Absolutely. Jim Lee is today, you know, from where he came. It's it's great. Yeah, yeah he's in he's in the rarefied air that the rarefied air people look at as rarefied air. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, his first ever published work was in Salston Publications Christmas Special, Samurai Santa Number no. 1, 1986. It, it uh, oddly doesn't go for that crazy a price online. 
I'd, I'd never heard of it before. No, but me it, uh, it's But it's uh, it's not as outrageous. I'm sure in 1992 and 1993 it was uh, yeah, <laughs> it was big bucks. But uh, did you see any not... interiors? Did what it looks like? I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. I, but but uh, admittedly, I didn't look hard enough. Yeah, I bet if we take a um, look, we'll find a couple, a couple of panels out there. Sure, sure. Uh, he attended New York Comic Con in 1987, where he met Archie Goodwin, who was then working for Marvel Comics as an editor. He got a gig. Uh, he received his first assignment by editor Carl, Carl Potts, who hired him to pencil the. Uh, it's a mid-list series, not a uh, not a not an X-Men, yeah. <laughs> but a but kind of a peripheral X book. This is Alpha Flight. And he began with issue number 51, uh, cover date October 1987. This is his first Marvel story. However, his art did appear on a single page of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, the Lux Edition number 17, which hit shelves two months earlier. Hmm. It was a just a, a character portrait for a uh, for an Ohatmu page. So interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, his first cover art is on Alpha Flight number 55, cover date uh, February uh, 1988, and he would move on from that title uh, in 1989 to Punisher War Journal. Now, also in 89, Lee filled in for regular illustrator Mark Silvestri on Uncanny X-Men number 248 and did another guest stint on issues number 256 through number 258 as part of the, part of the Acts of Vengeance storyline. Now, Acts of Vengeance pitted Marvel heroes with uncharacteristic villains. For example, the X-Men's baddie during this time was the Mandarin, who normally is an Iron Man villain. This was a time when heroes fighting villains outside of the normal rogues gallery was still novel. It's no longer the case anymore. Unfortunately. Uh, yeah. Uh, he be- but Lee became the series' regular artist with number 267. Uh, Silvestri left the title on his own accord. I didn't. I don't know if you know of any bad blood, but I didn't see any signs I don't of that. think so. Yeah, I think it just he moved on. Um, he worked with Chris Claremont as the writer, and he co-created Gambit during that time. Now, in I think Silvestri, he moved on to Wolverine. Oh, all right, point. there so, you yeah, go. He stayed in the X family. Yeah, and he was definitely like, oh yeah, I want to, I want to write the, I want to draw the cool one, you know. Uh, of course, everyone wants a <laughs> piece of Wolverine. So now, in 1991, Lee helped launch a second X-Men series, simply called X-Men. This was mm-hmm. X-Men Volume 2, number 1, October 1991, is, and it, rem- it was, and it remains the best-selling comic book of all time, moving 8.1 million copies and netting $7 million in profit. Nice. Uh, there were several covers, but still, this is amazing. You know, I don't, mm-hmm. it's never been matched. Um According to a public pro- proclamation by Guinness Book of World Records at this 2010 San Diego Comic-Con, by the way, that's where that statistic comes from, the issue did have five different variant covers, four of which showed different characters from the book that formed a single single image when laid side by side, and a fifth gatefold cover of the combined image. It's a pretty iconic cover, which Lee himself would homage as a print for the new 52's Justice League number 1, 2011, and... If you if you look at it, you you probably recognize it. Yeah, you'll know it. <laughs> uh, now uh, we're going to talk about image. I'm sure at another time, but we're just going to do a quick rundown of the uh, the revolution. We, here. We've done this part now several times. <laughs> I think we have, <laughs> but we never get we never get deep into it because we always move no. on to something else. We do, we do. And in brief, uh, Lee, along with several contemporaries, left Marvel in 1992 to start their own publishing imprint. This would afford them creative control and rights to their own properties, and most importantly, all the financial benefits that come with ownership. It's said that Lee initially felt a, uh, a bit of loyalty towards Marvel. He uh, he wasn't he wasn't the angry young man that some of the others were. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's rumored that. It's weird. There was a Sotheby's art auction for his own work that Marvel was going to fly him out to. And uh, his wife, I believe, was pregnant at the time. And uh, he wanted her to join him out there, and they refused to cover his uh, cover her airfare. Yeah. So that maybe put a little bug in his ear that he's not as valued by this company as perhaps he should be, considering he did just— Bring in almost eight figures of profit in a single issue. Oh yeah, and tons of money beside you know even just on his sure. regular work. Yeah, he was a he was the artist of the moment at the it guy, Marvel yeah. for sure. So yeah, this was maybe a dumb move on their part. 
I think in in retrospect, yeah. <laughs> now, the way it worked was each creator had their own imprint, which would uh, use image for distribution, public, uh, publicity, and manufacturing. But otherwise, it'd be on its, you know, its own creative and production needs. Like we've said before, the only thing that image trademarked was the image I. Yeah. Um, now, Lee's group of titles was initially called Aegis Entertainment before being christened Wildstorm Productions. In the welcome piece for this very issue, Lee refers to his endeavor as Homage Studios, which would eventually become an imprint within an imprint for Wildstorm and be home to series like uh, Kurt Busiek and Brent Anderson's Astro City and Terry Moore's Stranger in Paradise, uh, Strangers in Paradise, among others. But we will get to all that. Yeah, and I'm very thankful Chris was there to pull that apart for me because I, I, I know this fact about Image, of course, that they had, but, you know, Wildstorm had to make it more complicated for me. I was like, who the yes. Ages? Oh my, what the hell's going on around here? Anyway, so now we're going to jump right into Wildcats Covert Action Team's number one. The story is Resurrection Day. The cover is pretty much what you would expect from a 1990s uh, team book. I don't really know how to put it. Every, pretty much. Every member of the team looking at you menacingly and, uh, you know, yeah, shocking explosions and things happening. So... It is the past, July 29th, 1980 to be exact, and we're at the United States Research Station Zebra in Antarctica. Two researchers follow up on a spike in their sensor reading and come across what is either a meteorite crater or wreckage from a Soviet space station. Either way, the only thing that appear it's the only thing that's appeared to have survived was a metallic sphere. Begins to glow pink and an equally metallic woman shows up to take it before it's too late. In the future, which is still our past, but the future from the scene we just saw, uh, it's because it's August 9th, 1992. To be more, even more specific, it's 0022 a.m. Uh, I don't think you need to put a.m. p.m. in military time. That's why they express so. it that way. But, but <laughs> you know, why, why, why make it unclear? We, it's, it's, you know, very early in the morning. That's the point sure. here. Uh, or late at night. Or very, it depends how you look at it. Yeah, it's been just after midnight. Um, at, the crisis central, at the Crisis Control Center in McLean, Virginia, two men are discussing a recent explosion in Georgetown. It's decided the event will be a press blackout. They're just going to blame the thing on Libya. Yeah, what harm could that do? It never has done any harm in the past, so let's nah. just keep on, keep on, keep it on. Mm-hmm. The damage is over a dozen dead and two city blocks completely vaporized. We'll just cover that up. Sure. Uh, their best guess is that a couple of rogue <laughs> covert action teams had a scuffle. Forensics ID'd one of the bodies, one belonging to a dwarf. Hmm. The metallic woman blinks for a moment but disappears just as quickly. Now, speaking of that dwarf, let's check in with him in the present, which is August 8th, 1990. Remember that date. (laughs) Isn't the present August 9th? That's the future. That's the future. All right. I'm sorry. We'll we'll, we'll get there. (laughs) Now, he's laying in the fetal position in an alley surrounded by garbage, which includes signage for a future site of Image Comics, Miller beer, which is a real thing, but we get the reference. Uh, because we, it's right under a box of Masuchelli candies. Yeah. There's also an Extreme Studios flyer and a box of X-Men Volume 2, Number 1. <laughs> it's the Magneto cover, if you're interested. Uh, he's approached, as he's lay there, uh, you know, drenched in his own filth, yep. by a couple of street toughs. Yep, a fellow named Tony with a tremendous uh, baton of some kind comes over mm-hmm. and says, Hey, Sal, what do we got here? A bum in our neighborhood? He's homeless, Tony. That's the politically correct term. Okay, a homeless bum. Either way, I say we roll him. And they hold up the poor dwarf, who suddenly exhibits energy powers, which scares him and surprises everyone else involved. (laughs) Uh, The toughs wail on him for a bit until, uh, hey, that metallic lady shows up again. (laughs) Uh, This is going to be a theme. Uh, After swiftly taking down the baddie, she informs the dwarf, who is Jacob Marlowe, that he was at one point in time Lord Emp, one of the Lords of Power. Mm -hmm. She continues to warn that the Cabal has resurfaced to threaten humanity. Yeah. A lady told me that the other day. I was like, I'm not sorry, lady. I don't have time. I'm not buying. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't uh, carry cash. I'm sorry. Exactly. Yeah. No, no, (laughs) I'm blowing glaze. I got to go. So in in case you're tired of time traveling, we have another jump. We're going from the present to today, which is, uh, yeah, that's August 8th, 1992, which you may notice is one day before the future. 
Huh? Uh-huh. Yeah, that was real simple. <laughs> uh, Marlowe's back in the fetal position in an alley, less full of putrefying garbage, but still pretty gross. No shout-outs in this uh, thing, sadly. No. And of, of note, uh, if our spell check is to be believed, shout-outs is actually a word. Yeah, well, welcome to the post Yoan TV Raps world, Chris. <laughs> I guess. Uh, a drunken Marlowe wanders out of the alley and into traffic where he's immediately hit by a cab. But he sure. kind of brushes it off. He's fine. You know, I guess a low center of gravity means no big deal. And he <laughs> continues his walk to the Halo building where the doorman says, oh, Good morning, Mr. Marlowe. Shut up. I don't pay you to talk. Oh, yes, sir, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, Marlowe enters an elevator where he's primped and manicured. And uh, a fellow named Stanfield says, Another nasty night in the town, eh, Mr. Marlowe? Some habits die hard, I suppose. Shut up, Stansfield. Of course, sir. Uh, Marlowe arrives on the 111th floor, his penthouse office, and we learn that the Halo Corporation's value went up 2.5 billion overnight. Hey, how nice for a guy that spent it sleeping in an alleyway. Sure. Uh, Marlowe is joined by our favorite scene interrupter, the metallic woman. Her name is Void. She shares a recurring dream she has had wherein she does battle with the masked man who wields the metallic sphere from earlier. The orb somehow causes the fabric of time and reality to get all shades of screwy, which is... Because that's what happens. That's what orbs pretty much do in comics, you know? If you mm -hmm. see an orb, it's probably going to disrupt the uh, chronal stuff. <laughs> so the pair head down to a special elevator to the combat training room. Which is pretty much and exactly the X-Men's danger room. I think the Blackbird's in there. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's you know, anyway, I, I, that, that could, we, we could go too, too long on that, but quite the rip. Uh, yes. Team leader gives a liber literal and verbal thumbs up about their progress. That is to say, he actually says it's a thumbs up while giving a thumbs up. So in case you wanted to know, is that count as two? I don't know. That's like an A+. Plus. Yes. Uh, we learned that both thumbs ups were a bit premature as Cats members Maul and Warblade, uh huh, yeah, uh, crash into <laughs> team leader Spartan. Marlowe is disappointed. You call this ready, Spartan? I'd just as soon fight the cabal for myself. Maybe I can afford a young blood or two. Uh, why don't you just go check the quarter bin, Jake? You'll find about a dozen. I think probably. Yeah. Now, speaking of the Cabal, in an oversized aircraft called the Behemoth, uh, it hovers over Chesapeake Bay, on board sit several movers and shakers of the Cabal, including their leader, Hellspont. Also includes a man with an eye patch and a monocle. Yeah. He's got a lot, he's got a lot of cranial accessories. Yeah, we, we had a good time with this guy this week. I, I was saying that it's probably his mother makes him wear his monocle. He's like, oh, mom. He's like, you got to wear it, you know. <laughs> but I'm already missing an eye. Yeah, I already look like a dork, you know. It's hilarious. <laughs> no, they, were, they are figuratively grilling a man named Alberto Cassini, who they fear to be a traitor. Uh, he, they think he's giving secrets and um, giving information to a guy named Gnome, who, believe it or not, is a different fella from the dwarf we already know. <laughs> Just to make it more confusing. But okay. <laughs> yes, we've got a Gnome and a dwarf. Now, the Cabal's Deadpool stand-in, Pike, because every book has a Deadpool stand-in around now, Oh yeah. he shoves Caselli's head into a plate of spaghetti and meatballs, suffocating him. Yeah, I don't think I would just sit in there and keep eating a, a, a pasta while a flaming-headed alien is, you know, breaking <laughs> yes. my balls. And the whole thing is just a little, you know, I guess he was hungry. That's all he got to say. What are you going to sure. do? He, he makes it a pie. He eats it a food. Uh, now, possibly the last words that Caselli hears is a really bad joke from Pike. Caselli's head is in the pasta, and he goes... Yeah, and Pike says, After all, a condemned man's entitled to his last meal. Don't think they meant it like that. No. Okay. <laughs> now, with that riffraff out of the way, Hellspond turns his attention to a woman named... Providence. Hey, yeah. and, and she comes from a land called Convenience, I think, right? Was... <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, she mentions that the one he seeks is close. The one, in this case, is a woman who has, quote-unquote, the sight. Mm. One that they must ensure isn't, quote-unquote, turned by the cherubim. Mm. The gnome is looking to sell her to the highest bidder. 
And wouldn't you know it, at this very moment, we segue into a meeting between the gnome and the dwarf. Are you sure we're not reading Alice in Wonderland all of a sudden? <laughs> oh, I'm, still, I'm, still in, <laughs> I'm late, I'm late, I'm late. Uh, now, they come to an arrangement. This woman, the one with the sight, will not cost Marlowe a dime in this exchange, only a favor to be named later. That's right, eh, which he's okay with, which is probably a bad deal to make, but that's uh, Marlowe's. You never want to do that, yeah. No. We, we're going to come to a point where we realize Marlowe's, a, well, Marlowe's an idiot. Marlowe's not, not a bright kind of fella, but that's, no. you know, that's all right. Uh, at that very moment in Georgetown, a man named Cole Cash enters a nightclub or strip club, both kind of doing double duty, called the Hot Spot. It's the same place as a sister zealot found him back in the 70s. Uh, we don't know who that is yet. He bellies up to the bar, and like so many early 90s comic book characters, seems to be familiar with everybody. <laughs> On stage is a purple-haired dancer who is definitely not Psylocke. In fact, it's the woman with the sight named Voodoo, who looks just like, I mean... <laughs> Ridiculous. Psylocke with darker hair, it's, darker it's, skin. They've yeah. just colored, recolored her differently. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's so similar. But anyway, uh, Cash fires up a cigarette to watch this show, and we come to find out that he's not the only person paying attention to it. A blonde, a blonde buzz cut fella in a suit and shades approaches the stage, and Voodoo recoils in fear. We enter into Voodoo Vision, which is kind of like when Roddy Piper puts on the sunglasses and they live, and he can see all the alien faces and the uh, signs change to what oh, they please. actually say. Yeah. Uh, and she sees that the man is actually a horrifying monster. This is probably that self-same sight we've been hearing about, I'm assuming. Probably. I hope so. Uh, now, the baddies start killing fools left and right to, in an attempt to uh, snag Miss Voodoo. Cash realizes it's time to go to work, and so he puts on his familiar face towel mask. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we give you Grifter. And uh, there's a lady nearby who goes, Hey, you're a shaft, aren't you? Do something. Ah, uh, my adoring public. Mm-hmm. Now, during the fracas, our heroes are watching the news. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> They're abreast of things. Yeah. Of note, on the screen is the familiar news lady from Spawn, which was pretty cool to see. Uh, now, they decide, hey, maybe we ought to get involved. Void says, we must be there. Is the team ready? Spartan says... There's only one way to find out. And the Marlowe, he breaks out his old trademark. <laughs> Shut up. I'm thinking. I'm supposed to be the leader here. Yeah, Marlowe's kind of an idiot, isn't he? He is. Yeah. He's, he's, he's definitely dumb. Uh, now, back at the bar, Grifter has grabbed Voodoo, and he's protecting her from the Cabal Horde. The dude just unloads a shot from his magnum <laughs> right into the baddie's gut. I, really, it's, it's pretty brutal, scene. yeah. It's, that's like the top panel, too, you know? Yep. And it only slows it down. Uh, just as the numbers game catches up to Grifter, the Wildcats finally arrive on the scene. Yeah, I guess uh, they, they're done with their thinking. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Time passed. Uh, the cats make short work of the daemonites, so we're assuming that they're the daemonites. Uh, and Marlowe leans against a box to gloat when an armored dude sneaks up behind him and threatens to blow his brains out. Marlowe is still an idiot. Mm -hmm. Now, before Marlowe's mind mass goes mess, a throne chakram, a throne chakram sinks into the bad dude's dome. Grifter says, It's about friggin' time! Maul, who's been silent up to this point, goes, Yeah, talk about a splitting headache. Very good, Maul. I hope you're the comic relief. It's <laughs> Zealot, the fellow that the uh, woman that uh, Grifter was talking about before, and her thighs, or maybe it's really thighs and Zealot, because she is probably about, oh, 40 to 50% thigh. Pretty this much. This woman. Um, she's described as a coda, an avenging angel. Okay. She seems to know Marlo, which is a surprise to him. With the threat averted, the cats and company de decompress and have a meet and greet. This gives a surviving cabal member the opportunity to activate a detonator that blows up Georgetown. Welcome to the future. Or was that the present? It is now, but before it was the future, but now we're now it's it's happening. <laughs> You see. Or it's then, or it, then it was later. Exactly, yeah. It's later okay. than now. It's now. So that's that's how it works. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, I, I wish it was more. Uh, I wish it was this uh, clear in the book. Uh, elsewhere, Hellspot watches the explosion, and as he chats with Benefactor, the animatic Vice President Dad Quail. Yes, mm -hmm. the actual Vice President of the United <laughs> States of America. <laughs> 
Oh my god! I, when I saw this, this, uh, this is what I loved the book. I was like, oh well, thank. You. I, I didn't realize this was a great comic. Uh, and yeah, there's a little potato joke in there. there I some people might not know or remember this, but at the time he had misspelled the plural of potatoes to be without the e. So you misspelled the singular. Or oh, that's what it was. He sp- and he put an e at the end of the singular. As that's yeah. what it was. Uh, and they, they threw a little joke in there, and it's like. It's so it's so contextual, you know what I mean? Like if you, yeah. it's you show this to anyone person. now, they're like, "Wait, they misspelled potato." They misspelled potato, and who is this? Must you know be a typo. I mean? It's so it's such a. This is a perfect 1992 book. Yes, uh, sadly there was no mention of his feud with Murphy Brown, but I'm not sure if that started yet. No, who knows? Maybe maybe down the line it gets more uh, deal with it more. I don't gets know. more Murphy centric. Uh, so that, now, that ends uh, that ends it. our first issue. Um, and I just want to say I I liked it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was you know definitely silly. Definitely you have to look at it in the context of you know '90s comics and image launches. But compared to Youngblood, I thought this was a lot better, a lot more coherent. Yes. We're not wondering yes. who, what the hell's going on, even though it is. <laughs> even though what's going on is ridiculous, at least we understand it, what's happening in on the page. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that was Wildcats number one. Uh, but we're not done yet. We're going to do a little bit of a back-end work here. We're going to talk about uh, Wildstorm. Uh, Wildstorm was founded by Jim Lee and Brown and Choi and was one of the founding studios that formed Image Comics in 1992. As we mentioned before, it was briefly named Aegis Entertainment, and uh, I almost said Aegis Entertainment. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of back then, though, yes, wasn't it? Old we dudes. Need, we, need them, we need them young, man. Uh, <laughs> And uh, Homage Studios, of course. We we already mentioned that. Um, in late 1992, Penciler and Image Comics co-founder Mark Silvestri joined the studio to work on his first issue of Cyberforce. Uh, although he worked at the Wildstorm studio, his projects would debut as uh, the work of a new Image Partner studio. Uh, it was called Top Cow. Though, uh, though he was in his own thing, he did continue to work at a Wildstorm studio for about two years. Um, now, although Wildstorm considered uh, considered attracting talent, uh, you know, name talent like uh, John Romita Jr. from the Big Two, Lee decided instead to find new talent. And his talent search yielded both Brett Booth in 1992 and J. Scott Campbell in 1993. Yeah. And uh, you know, Brett Booth still does work. Actually, they both do work today. Brett Booth is you know yep. now one of the He's main on Titans artists in. Uh in dc though in general and it definitely served them well i think it was a smart move kind of to the spirit of image and what it was and is and, i guess and my first uh, j scott campbell uh exposure was in an issue of nintendo power really what did he do yes and he did he pitched a game called lock arm uh you can find images of this online but uh it was the first time I ever saw his work. I didn't even realize it was him until after the fact. I, I, I was I was hoping he did that uh, comic that was in there with the Howard and Nesta. Yeah, Howard and Nesta. God, I love that <laughs> thing. It was so sober to stilly. Uh, anyway, now we go on to Deathmate. It's probably yes. difficult to imagine how big indie comics publishers were in the early 90s. Deathmate was something that hit at just the right time and could not happen really today. Uh, this was a crossover between two of the hottest non-Big Two publishers going, Image and Valiant. That was like Jim Shooter's yeah. thing for a little while, and they, they actually edged him out, I think, probably by now. And would sell hundreds of thousands of copies per issue. Un- amazing. These were prestige format books at four ninety-five apiece in 1993 books, which would translate to $8.32 today per issue, mm-hmm. uh, now available in just about every 25-cent bin. <laughs> Wildstorm, I mean, it's um, uh, incredible. It's like printing your own money, though. You know what I mean? It's Basically. Like you put out this, like, weird crossover, and you're selling six-figure numbers. Um, Wildstorm characters were at the forefront, with one in particular playing a linchpin role in this Deathmate story. It was Wildcat's member Void falls in love with Solar from Va- Variant, from Valiant. And Solar himself first appeared in Dr. Solar, Man of the Atom Number 1, October 1962, by Gold Key Comics. Jim Lee was not involved in the project, however, Brandon Choi was. This event would feature the Cats and have the first appearance of another Wildstorm heavy hitter, Gen 13. The issues were numbered by color. 
Mm-hmm. Between the prologue and epilogue, there were yellow, blue, black, and red. <laughs> this being partially, why make it easy? That's what I, I I'm glad it's so much challenging us. You know, so much to do. Number the comics for the people that do. They're not you know, even in alphabetical order. I know. Like how? It's like, well, obviously the blue is before the black. Don't be silly, Chris. So what are you reading them totally out of order here? Uh, what if it's like it's like this this is for the drug addicts uh, you know something for them in the in the thing you know they <laughs> they they see colors as numbers and they hear you know food or whatever anyway uh so it should go without saying that deathmate red shipped well after deathmate epilogue because it was obviously a uh image book uh, we'll might do our own weird comics history about uh this down the line when we talk about the speculator boom which we have constantly threatening to do and we yes. promise to get we'll get there eventually, eventually. <laughs> uh, another uh, another story we ha- have here is a shattered image which is a kind of the image comics crisis on infinite earths uh, this was a four-part miniseries published in 1996 by image it was written by kurt busick with illustrations by carl carl kiesel the story deals with a split in the image universe leading to a separate Wildstorm Universe. This was a result of a creative move. This was the result of a creative move to help Wildstorm establish themselves separately from the image brand. Um, it was also a way to facilitate the Mark Silvestri top cow characters leaving the image universe as he and his brand were on the way out. We fell the drama, you know? Yep. Yep. It's, <laughs> uh, all, it's all part of the story yet to be told, folks. Yes. Uh, by the end of the event, things work themselves out <laughs> as they do um imprints inside the imprint we threatened this earlier and here we go <laughs> homage comics uh, or homage comics as i would say when i was a kid That's um <laughs> created in 1995 with an eye toward writer driven books as mentioned astro city and strangers in paradise would uh, call this imprint home for a time uh, James Robinson's Leave It to Chance and Warren Ellis's Red would also appear. Uh, in 2004, it would merge with the next imprint inside an imprint we're about to discuss, which is Cliffhanger! Uh, exclamation point. Yeah, I thought uh, the exclamation point had to be part of it, yeah. Yes, Cliffhanger! Yep. Um, now, this was a imprint founded in uh, 1998 by Joe Majuara, J. Scott Campbell, and Umberto Ramos. Their books, Battle Chases, Danger Girl, and Crimson, were all part of the launch. In uh, 2003, Cliffhanger would publish trade paperbacks for Old Piranha Press Book, Epicurious the Sage, and Image's own The Max, uh, the latter of which has since moved on to IDW. Um, in 2004, the imprint was merged, like we said, with homage, and together they would form the Wildstorm Signature Line. Sure. Uh, there was also America's <laughs> Best Comics, another imprint that, that was set up in 1999 by Alan Moore. It should be mentioned that this was established just before DC Comics got into the Wildstorm business. And in fact, Alan Moore found that he felt like they were sort of chasing him around because they mm. acquired Wildstorm not long after this got set up. And Anyway, that's maybe for the Alan Moore episode. <laughs> Prominent titles included The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Top Ten, Tom Strong, and Promethea. He was a little. He was a little annoyed, like we say, when uh, it was sold to DC Comics, while the imprint. But he decided to f- fulfill his commitments to Lee. He ended the ABC universe with Promethea number thirty-two, Rat Party, April two thousand five. Which, if you ever seen it, is pretty out there, and that series is also pretty out there, but mm-hmm. very instructive if you ever wanted to become a weirdo magician. I think so. Uh, DC would release a special edition of this issue where the entire story is printed on. Two 27 by 48 inch posters and would come with a 48 page saddle stitch companion book. Yours now for the low, low price of $49.95 at dccomics.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, the spoiler alert the story ended with the apocalypse. So that's if you don't want to buy the comic, and we gave, we gave away the end. <laughs> Uh, also, Star Wars and Lucas Films came knocking around there almost to do something. Uh, in 1997, when the license for the Star Wars books came up, Wildstorm tried to obtain those publication rights. This was right when the original trilogy was returning to theaters to prepare the uh, unwitting audience for the prequels that were going to come in 1999. And uh, But Dark Horse was able to keep those books for then, for now. Uh, we sure. know now Marvel does them, so... Mm-hmm. They were all wiped away, but anyway. <laughs> yes, um, but eventually, like we said, uh, Wildstorm would be bought by DC Comics. Uh, Lee and DC worked toward a sale, which was finalized in January 1999. Up 
to this point, Lee had actually been trying to find a buyer for the brand. Uh, now, DC's public statement is that they did this to uh, strengthen both Wildstorm's ability to expand its editorial goals and diversifying DC's output. Yeah, that sounds uh, like that was probably the exact reason, right, Chris? I think definitely, <laughs> yeah. That sounds, sounds legit. Uh, now, while DC did own the imprint, the editorial was kept separate, even uh, going as far as residing on opposite coasts of the United States. Uh, Lee and company were in, uh, in California, mm. and DC was still in New York at the time. Uh, now, the imprint will be home to uh, Wildstorm mainstays, new properties, and licensed, which were like movie and video game-based titles. There would be some crossover between DC and Wildstorm. We had uh, Majestic popping up in Superman comics. Uh, Captain Adam would venture into Wildstorm. Uh, Infinite Crisis and 52 would designate Wildstorm as Earth-50. Uh, the uh, fallout of that, we have a countdown, the search for Ray Palmer. They had a, an issue that took place in the Wildstorm universe. Hmm. Uh, the line would be shuttered in December 2010. With uh, DC's 2011 New 52 initiative, the Wildstorm characters and properties were folded into the DC universe proper, which began during the Flashpoint miniseries event where Grifter showed up. Uh, I think he was there to save Lois Lane. He, so was, pretty, uh, he was in that storyline. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah. what I remember. Yeah. Now, in the New 52, uh, we have uh, Voodoo, Grifter, and Stormwatch titles were all part of the initial launch, uh, with Team 7 briefly having a title in one of the subsequent waves. Uh, Midnighter would get his own series in the DCU, Y-O-U, right? Then, yeah, that sounds right. He had a, he had a six-issue miniseries. Oh, it was an ongoing. Yeah, that's right. He started with the DCU. Ongoing, yeah. You're right. You're right. Now he's got uh, the Midnighter Apollo thing. Yeah, so, yeah, like I was saying here, like, even in the post-rebirth landscape, there was that Midnighter and Apollo miniseries that is either just about to or just has wrapped up. I'm not sure. I think six, number six still has to come. I could be just still has to come out. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, as of 2017, Wildstorm has been revived so far with a single title called The Wildstorm, three words, uh, by Warren Ellis. Yeah, and, and it's pretty good. The internet is buzzing about it. I checked it out. I, I, I dug it, but... I it's one issue we it who knows what will come of it you know what I mean it's sure it's nothing there, there's talks of there being other titles in that imprint Books in the imprint yeah nothing hard so it's it's totally a blank blank slate for now but mm-hmm. much more to say about Jim Lee the man was very prolific we're going to rewind a little bit and talk about Heroes Reborn which we have talked about on this show before <laughs> this is from 1996 to 1997 a Marvel uh, at the time having just filed for bankruptcy right or just about to they were they just were, about to I believe they yeah. were sort of in in dire straits and they contracted Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld uh, which it was supposed to originally be Lee and Mark Silvestri, but Silvestri backed out to breathe new life into some properties, which were considered to be stagnant and in need of revitalization. They would relaunch four titles, Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, and Fantastic Four. Lee specifically worked on Iron Man and Fantastic Four. However, he was forced to pick up the slack when Rob went AWOL, quit, was fired. Who knows what happened to him? He also mm-hmm. had to work on... The other books, uh, this is Booby Captain America 2, folks, by yes. the way, and you're wondering. Heroes Reborn, along with Onslaught and Heroes, Re- and Heroes Return, is likely a large enough topic and strange enough time for its own episode. So we'll discuss that at length at a later date. We've already touched on it several times, and it's been weird. It's been strange enough in those yes. grazings. So, yeah, this is something. <laughs> this is That whole era is unbelievable. The whole 90s is, is a in comics. Very nutty. Something yeah. to talk about. Um, then later on, there was Just Imagine Stan Lee creating Wonder Woman. This was a series of books where Jen, Stan Lee reimagined all the DC, or a lot of the DC heroes. Yeah. Uh, and made them wildly different, I, you know, to... Uh, well, you know, that's up to you to decide <laughs> the effect. Anyway, so, uh, so the man whose name was synonymous with Marvel for nearly half a century did a series of prestige format one-shots for the distinguished competition. He, along with a revolving cast of artists would reimagine DC Comics heavy hitters, including Batman, Superman, Green Lantern, Flash, Captain Marvel, Aquaman, Catwoman, and Sandman. The characters teamed up in a JLA one-shot, and the series concluded with a Just Imagine Stan Lee creating Crisis. The Lees worked together on Wonder Woman, that's Stan and Jim, who was reimagined as an alliterative activist Maria Mendoza, and she received her powers from an Incan sun god. That's something. 
Uh, the Just Imagine dot 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 series may warrant the revisiting somewhere down the line for its sheer novelty, if not for quality of stories it produced of interest. The Just Imagine dot 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 stories take place on Earth six, per the current post multiversity designation. And I have a feeling we this could be in an episode of alternate takes, right? Something yes. like this. Uh, I don't know if this is a full one, but it's definitely interesting. I used to look at these uh, trades all the time just to flip through them, but never quite felt like I needed to pick them up. <laughs> I, I, I bought them all at full price because I'm an idiot. Yeah. Now, <laughs> uh, anyway, that's, 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 it's, it's definitely an interesting experiment. It was definitely something I wanted to look at, so I'll say sure, that. Sure. It, it, uh, it was a nice odd timepiece yeah. for whenever it was. Um, now, least uh, DC work continues. Batman Hush between 2002-2003 is where Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee were given... Uh, they, they were there to give Batman a shot in the arm. Uh, the story ran from Batman 608 to 619, cover dates December of 02 to September of 03, and did not face any outlandish missed deadlines. Nice. Which is odd. Mm-hmm. Um now, the story gave Lee the opportunity to draw pretty much all of Batman's rogues gallery. Uh, it also introduced the character of Hush. Um, it also planted the seeds for the return of Jason Todd, if you look at it in retrospect. Yeah, I don't, that, that wasn't <laughs> Jeff Loeb's intention, but it was no. used that way. <laughs> Now it was a it was it was like a bottle rocket. It was a sales boom for DC, and it was among the first projects for then new, now well seasoned DC exec Dan DiDio. Uh, Batman number six hundred eight ranked number one with sales of one hundred twenty thousand nine hundred forty five copies. Wow. The month earlier, Batman number six hundred seven ranked thirty two hmm. with sales of forty six thousand five hundred twenty seven. I think this Lee might uh, have some. His name yeah. might carry a little bit of weight. Exactly. Right? Yeah, he might actually juice sales a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Uh, now the book remained a top five title for the entirety of this run, uh, even holding the number one spot most months. It wouldn't dip below number ten until December of two thousand three, which was months after Hush ended. Uh, Lee and Loeb were going to do a subsequent six issue arc. However, However, plans fell through, because mm. that happens sometimes, I suppose. Yeah. <clears throat> now, from Batman, he goes to Superman. We have Superman for Tomorrow, which ran from 2004 to 2005. Hoping Lee could do for Superman what he did for Batman, DC set him up to draw a story penned by Brian Azzarello, which sucked. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it started out okay, but it really got bad. Um <laughs> Uh, it ran through uh, Superman Volume 2, 204 to 215. Uh, cover dates June 04 to May 05. Sales skyrocketed. Uh, Superman 204 ranked number one with sales of 231,424. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's crazy, right? <clears throat> Now, a month prior, we have Superman number 203, ranked number 13, with sales of 83,096, which is still abnormally high. Because they included a Jim Lee sketchbook. I was going to say, I mean, this, this is still like doubling <clears throat> Batman yeah. sales the year before, uh, you know, prior to Jim Lee. But all right, this, that explains it, why that happened. But the month before that, with uh, Superman number 202, it ranked number 30 with sales of 50,435. Mm, that sounds more like it. <laughs> and that was still inflated because it was, that, it was a Michael Turner story. Oh, wow. So, uh, that was still inflated. Uh, now, yeah. Superman re- remained a top 10 book throughout the story arc. However, unlike Batman, it quickly dropped following Lee's departure. Yeah, you know, it's it's tough to find Superman outselling or even performing Alongside Anywhere Batman, near Batman uh, yeah. Unless these kind of things happen But uh, you know It's is what it is as they say So we can move on to another famous Collaboration of Jim Lee's <laughs> uh, All Star Batman and Robin The Boy Wonder this was in 2005 The All Star line at first Was intended to be chasing Marvel's ultimate line of comics Which was doing pretty big business at the time That's sort of their real universe at the time Or mm-hmm. I don't know how to really put it uh, series featured Jim Lee and Art and some pretty interesting Frank Miller writing. Interesting is one way to put it. Inter- yes. That's a good way to that. That's a very judicious, a judicious way to put it there, yes. uh, Chris. <laughs> the uh, GD series is one that almost certainly will be taking a trip on the Cosmic Treadmill at some point. Oh, yeah, we, we could definitely do this one. It's a corker, <laughs> folks. Let me tell you, it's definitely not your daddy's Batman. It may not even be your uh, son's Batman. I don't know who's Batman no, it is. Not even if he's on drugs. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. But yeah, that whole, that whole be a all, lot of fun voice acting in that. That whole all-star thing was meant to return, you know, heroes back to their whatever fun origins. Sure. That's where we get all-star 
Superman, which is, uh, you know, Morrison and Quietly, and we've talked Quietly. about that a little bit, and that is uh, amazing. You know, it's maybe the best singular untouchable yeah. Superman story. Definitely up there if you're if you're a fan or not. I think you dig it. This sort of killed that whole line, though. You know, like <laughs> anyway. But we, let's not give it all away in in the uh, talk about it now. Uh, and then not long after that, and he did just he drew Justice League of the New Fifty Two in twenty eleven. He was the regular artist for the linchpin book of the New 52 Initiative Justice League, written by Jeff Johns. By this time, he was also co-publisher of DC, sharing mm-hmm. the title with Dan DiDio. So he has risen in the ranks from a guy getting rejections from Howard Mackey to uh, yes. somebody calling the shots. Um, a couple of years after that, they did he did Superman Unchained. This was just in time for the Man of Steel movie. So DC decided to get serious about the, you know putting something out to... to capitalize on that movie uh but rather than call the book the man of steel they somehow decided on calling it unchained and also it has literally nothing to do with anything in the movie anything i I would say i mean i I, i've seen man of steel and read unchained and they might as well be unchained is actually like a pretty good sci-fi story not really Mm -hmm. a superman story but anyway that's more editorializing it was written by scott snyder with art by lee and it took way long to produce this nine-issue series it was supposed to be an ongoing, maybe it was never clear. Publishers can be sort of withholding about that, though. You know, they don't yeah. like to tell you up front if something's limited. They feel like it reduces the sales, and, you know, they're kind of right. Uh, yeah, Chris says, uh, you, can, you can say your part yeah, here. When I read the first issue, I remember wondering if they were bringing in Dr. Manhattan. It seemed like they were heading that way. I think they, they, must, they must have heard your thoughts somehow. They were like, hey, I think they did. that's a good they, idea. Well, Maybe one of uh, Jim Lee's psychic St. Louis high school friends. <laughs> That's right. That training came in handy. <laughs> the espers are around. Uh, well, that's that's where we're going to leave with Lee, but we're not done with the cats. Um, see, volume one, which is the covert action teams, 50 issues plus a number zero. Also one annual and one special. We have some notable creators here besides Lee and Choi. We have Chris Claremont, which showed many of us ex-fans there was really no bad blood between Chris and Jim. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, James Robinson and Alan Moore. Uh, Claremont wrote issues 10 through 13, and since it's Chris Claremont, the focus is on the strong female zealot, because that's what Chris Claremont does. Um, James Robinson wrote issues 15 through 20, which this... This run flushes out the team insofar as their motivations and the history of the individual uh, members. Mm. The uh, complete James Robinson Wildcats is available in trade, because I think he also did some uh, minis that are tied in. Uh, Alan Moore issues 21 to 34. (laughs) This is a weird story. The Wildcats are off-planet, which would necessitate a new team being formed on Earth. Uh, the real team would eventually arrive on the Karen homeworld, only to find out that the the Caribbean Damonite War that they'd been fighting ended centuries ago. Oh my goodness! Uh, Earth was considered nothing but an outpost, and so nobody bothered relaying the message. <laughs> <laughs> now the uh, the complete Alan Moore Wildcats is also available. Of right? course, it's a, bit, it's a bit thicker than the uh, Robinson one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Alan Moore can't can't blow his nose without someone wanting to publish it. So, publish yeah. it, yeah, option it, and publish it. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> then we went to Volume Two. That was 1999 to 2001. This ran for 28 issues, written by Scott Lobdell and Joe Casey, doing the plotting and writing. This is no more covert action teams. This is just called Wildcats as one word, just as if they were simply Wildcats. Chris doesn't remember much about this run outside of Travis Charis' art, which is pretty amazing and a focus on more Earth-bound issues. There's still aliens and such, but it's more grounded, if that makes any sense. Uh, I can't claim to know, but I will take Chris's word for it. He, He was in the mix. Volume. Charis art is uh, it's almost like Mobius-like. It's it's good stuff. I can't think. Of, what else has he done that I might have seen? Anything you could? Think haven't of? the foggiest idea. Yeah, I could. I, <laughs> I should look it up though. I gotta say, after reading this issue, I may. I don't know if I if I need to read. What are we looking at here? Like you know, a hundred something issues of comics. No. But uh, yeah, take a little dip in here and there. But you might want to read this next volume we're gonna talk about. All right, uh, volume three, two thousand two to two thousand four. That was twenty four issues called Wildcats Version Three Point <laughs> All Joe Casey, a more corporate look at Halo and the cats. Spartan runs Halo Corp and tries to make the world a better place by selling everlasting interdimensional batteries, procured via Void's ability to enter the other space. 
It's a pretty interesting idea and pretty well implemented. World governments and rival businesses become a bit worried as the Halo brand grow. It's, uh, it's worth checking out, says Chris. It should be mentioned that the covers for this book are incredibly cool, different than everything else on the stands. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is the one to look at, but do you think that you could appreciate this book not having read a lot yes, of the earlier stuff? I think so. It stands I, uh, alone? Okay. Three stands alone, yeah. I, I know I know a lot of people got in on three. Okay. Um, because it, it is it, it is its own animal. It's a, it's good stuff. Okay. Um, the best volume ever, though, is volume four. It's uh, 2006. One whole issue. Oh, I like that. I like a nice short, short volume. Short volume, yes. <laughs> uh, this is written by Grant Morrison with art by the man himself, Jim Lee. It's called Wildcats, one word, capital W, capital C. It's a bit of a cluster. Now, get ready for this. This stems out of the Worldstorm event, which sort of rebooted the Wildstorm universe, and was caused by Captain Adam, sort of kind of really being Monarch, from Armageddon 2001. Right. After being sent by through a temporal rift following the opening arc of Superman Batman, which is the public enemy storyline where Lex Luthor was ousted from the White House. Right, I remember that. Holy cow. <sighs> wow, deep cuts, folks. Deep cuts. Yeah, we, we can't escape Monarch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to think I'm waiting for Wave Rider to touch me on the shoulder. Where's Extant? Uh, I thought he was Extant. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> now, we go into volume five, which is the final volume here, uh, 2008 to 2011. It was 30 issues. Uh, the Wildstorm universe faced a cataclysmic event following, uh, which threw the heroes into a post-apocalyptic landscape. Uh, the series has a team set out to put things right, which is, uh, in their words, healing the world. Oh. And I, I did not keep up with that one. Wow. Let me tell you, if, if you've knocked Chris off the... Uh... <laughs> you, you, you've you've done a wrong turn because he, yeah, he, he hangs good. it on yeah. there on some of these books. <laughs> now this is something I definitely want to talk about because I I mentioned this to Chris before the show. At this time, well, really in the late '90s, when I feel like Wildstorm was at its you know uh, creative peak in a sense or whatever. At least it, it was sort of in the mix a lot. I was not buying single issues in debt and certainly not checking out this stuff. This was just not in my world. You know, I, I this is partly. As I've talked about before, why I'd walked away from comics for a while was that I didn't feel like this art was what I wanted to see. That's more, maybe a longer story for another day. However, I do remember seeing ads for these, you know, Wildcats, uh, other properties, these these adaptations, and understanding that it was coming from this cartoon, this comic book. Because um, I would, I was would say to myself, I can't believe that this got adapted into a, a daytime cartoon. <laughs> uh, so I was aware enough of the property that you know I knew something was happening without ever actually looking at one comic. So I must have just sort of been aware of it in the air or something. Or uh, when I went to the comic shop, I would see, I guess, see these comics and make a note of them, and and uh, that was enough. But anyway, uh, Wildcats actually had a Saturday morning cartoon show. It lasted a single season that was from 1994 to 1995, and Pat may be best remembered for its catchy and quite crazy and uh, terrible theme song <laughs> that we are going to play at the end of the show. Yes. Uh, of note, Wildstorm did produce a full-length Gen 13 animated movie, and Disney got the distribution rights. It would be re- released in a few foreign markets, though if you're dying to see it, it's not hard to find on the tubes of you. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it had a it had a cartoon in the '90s, so it must have had an action figure line. Uh, and and uh, Chris is going to be doing some YouTube reviews of the figures coming up. So, <laughs> just kidding, folks. Don't look for it. In 1994, 1995, Playmates released a few lines of Wildcats figures. There was a six-inch line which featured most of the team and Hellspont, Pike. And a daemonite, so they got, so they've got someone to fight. How do they handle Hellspawn's head? It was a, uh, it was like a just a, like a blue plastic, or it was a black plastic ball with like blue plastic around it. I think right. it was a, uh, eh, it was something. They, it's kind of because his head kind of floats. You know, his face is kind of floating on that. Uh... You could set it on fire if you want. All right, well that's what that's what I would have done when I was twelve. Uh, yeah. Chris, Chris enjoyed them. You have any more? You have any more uh, great memories of the Wildcats action figures? Took me forever to find Grifter. It was the, the I assume the mask was hard plastic though. They didn't give you. A, yes. Yeah, of course. Otherwise, you'd no. constantly be peeking under there. 
Yes, and I tried to put it on myself. That's interesting. Uh, there were also giant. There was also uh, there were also giant collector's edition figures of Grifter, Spartan, and Maul, and mm-hmm. the Image Universe line of action figures would also see a few Cat's Family figures like uh, Mister Majestic. That was yes. when Image did their their comics. Now, I mean, also, their action figures. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, they had their own line of uh, universe figures there. Now they had a cartoon and a toy line. They also had a Super Nintendo game, which was called Jim Lee's Wildcats. Wow. Now it was a beat 'em up game, like a double dragon, but it was one player. Which kind of sucks. <laughs> what? That's so weird. Why? <laughs> I don't know. And you were able to play as Spartan, Maul, or Warblade. <laughs> one player. Why? <laughs> so. What? Did you hear that roster? It's Spartan, Mauler, and War- Warblade. You notice Grifter's missing. I know, like the most popular Zealot's one. That's, that's the one you <laughs> want to play with, you know, the cool one that shoots people point blank in the gut. In the gut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was basically a cheap arcade-style beat-em-up where every fight feels like a battle of attrition. You just hope the, uh, the, you know, the bad guy runs out of health before you do. Um, also, to, to discuss the popularity... A lot of us remember AOL. Oh, of course. Uh, I, I actually, I actually found an AOL uh, a disc in my garage this weekend with uh, the Nighthawks portrait on it. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and and like something like ten, a uh, thousand forty-five free hours too. I was yes, like, score, yes. I know. I was, I, I, I was gonna flip it over and give the codes out, but I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure where that would go to. Uh, when I first got AOL, which probably nineteen ninety-four ish, it was, it was like. Point eight or something like that. It was yeah. monochrome. I mean, it wasn't even in color. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Uh, yeah, I tried having my screen name be Spartan, and AOL said I couldn't use a name with derogatory or racial connotations. Okay. I didn't know that was bad. It, I, Anti-Greek, I guess? Is that what the problem is? Pro-Greek, I don't know. Uh, that's what I would think. All right, fine. <laughs> I eventually settled on Havoc from the X-Men. Wow, well, so. that was good. Uh, yeah. Which is not derogatory in any way. Fine. None at all. At all. Uh, we're going to wrap up with some final thoughts on the Wildcats here. Uh, now, this is personal here. Uh, these characters always sort of struck me as what any junior high or high school student would come up with in the early 90s if tasked to create a superhero team. You've got a clean-cut leader, a giant Goliath character, the badass character, the one with the claws, a magic girl, and a ninja girl. It feels so template and not the labor of love I see in the other image launch books. Yeah. It's all postulation, of course. I, I see Savage Dragon as being extremely personal to Eric Larson. It's uh, he shared adolescent sketches from you know sketches from his childhood, where Savage Dragon's in them. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and, and he pours a lot of himself in. I mean, that's like his only. That's his his lifelong dream gig, you know. Absolutely, and it's it. He, and he grew up with this character. Uh, in interviews, Todd McFarlane claims that he'd created Spawn a decade before it saw publication. Uh, for all the lumps we give Youngblood, this was Rob Liefeld's take on the New Titans, which was a property he cared deeply for and wanted to add lore into. Yeah. Wildcats just doesn't feel like that to me. It feels like it, it's like a, a corporate assemblage of what's going to sell. It, it, it's it's really almost what you expect, you know? Yeah. Much more than Youngblood was to me, where I was like, you know, I have a, I definitely have a idea in my mind about 90s comics that Youngblood probably filled more visually but <laughs> yes. but I noticed from that that this was this was something that he you know he was having trouble with the narrative but Rob had thought about a lot of this stuff a backstory you know what I mean mm-hmm. definitely know that about Spawn I mean Spawn's got a really rich world these guys not so much yeah they're, they're sort of they're sort of cookie cutter uh, yeah. You know, just a team slapped together that you know made yeah, sense. We need a big guy. That all being magic girl. That all being said, you know, option for cartoons and action figures and whatever else, they were right. You know what I they mean? Right. Like they, yep. they, they made a comic to make money, and it made a damn lot of it. Apparently, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the uh, it was the book that made a man out of Lee. I guess it uh, yeah. it pushed him into that uh, <laughs> that rarefied air. Hero, um, hero of the industry. Yes, indeed. Uh, and that's that's all we got. Uh, before yeah. we go, we do want to give a big thanks to V. Ken Marion. Uh, his work can currently be seen on Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps. Yeah, he's 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 a friend of the show, and and he listens mm-hmm. to this and then the uh, Weird Science DC Comics, and you know talks to uh, Jim and that. So 
we appreciate them and we would definitely glad to have read this one uh, for me personally it was brand new and i'm sure for you it was like dusting off an old friend it was but uh if you want to uh write to us and let us know what you think of this book or any other book or what we're doing or if you want to recommend another comic book from any publisher any year any time you can write to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com you can find our writings virtually every week at weirdsciencedccomics.com, reviewing comics and such. Find me on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And I tell you every single time, and I'll tell you this time, you got to go check out Chris's personal blog. Chris is on infiniteearth.blogspot.com. You've actually been dipping your toe into Convergence. I have been. Even yes. just despite the warnings and the, uh, you know, numerous, uh, the, the pain it's caused, you just, you had to see it for yourself. I, well, I, I read it when it first came out and I hated it, but only reading one two-parter a week, it's not as bad. Oh, yeah? Because yeah. because they were so samey. Like, it was like you'd have a little bit of action and you'd have the big speech and then you'd have That's a fight true. and that would be the end of it. But if you read them spaced out, it's not as bad. And the way it's you're, not, and the way it's you're not doing excellent. it, but and the way you're doing it, where it's it's two, you know, the one, the first and the second in the same, mm -hmm. you know, week or day, basically. They're weekends, yeah. Uh, th it, that probably is a better read because, like I say, like uh, the way the way I the way we, we read it when it came out was like you say, like you had a Blitz. week. A week yeah. of issues where you had the announcement, you know, and a week of issues <laughs> where you had the earthquake and. In some issues it mattered, and in some issues they kind of it didn't. They brushed it off. It was like a rumble. Yeah. So uh, that highlighted a lot of the editorial problems that I bet <laughs> yes, you, you don't see as acutely when you parcel it out the other way. So, but definitely mm -hmm. go check it out. He even has the weird Chip Kid variant covers that made no sense to me then. They make no sense to me now. Yes. Uh, you also did. You also did that book. Uh, what was I talking about before? Drawn by. Yeah. Uh, the hell was it? Oh yeah, that's yeah. what it was. <laughs> I was like, "What's the title?" It's yeah. Well, who's on first? Exactly. You know? Yeah's on first. Uh, uh, yeah, it's you gotta go check it out. Chris is an inverterstopblogspot.com. <laughs> it's a fantastic look at these weird DC comics, and uh, it's really well done. So, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? No, I think that's it. Uh, you know, again, big thanks to V Ken Marion and. Uh, and, and you know, any anybody else who wants to give uh, requests, we are open for business. We are open. Keep them coming. That's weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. And until next week, I'd like you to keep it on the treadmill covertly. It goes on like a marathon. Y'all get fond about the minute cause you end it with the liaison. I link the rap. See that trap. Check the map to find my way back. Once I free this jack, it's locked up, but it won't be long for I and up. Brooklyn represent up, rock the antenna, smooth but easily. Show you how it should be. While I come and expose the conspiracy. It's something bigger than you, it's something bigger than me. I'm talking big like the Statue of Liberty. Wreck the labels on the beach from the west to east. So they all got together and they had a feast. They cost a dime called Bill and it's told in the chill. Kickbacks going on up to Capitol Hill. And then the CIA, they go and buy some tanks. They use the money that the people keeping up in banks. Tell the right to Saddam, but they say I'm wrong. Yeah, right. Let me tell you what the fuck goes on. From the SNL crisis to the teams to scam. I'm the clean cut man in the black sedan. Shake your hand. Hit you with the secret disc to get the facts out the mist. The top 10 on it because the flow exposed what it is going on while your eyes are closed to covert operation